If you're not already there, Matthew 17 is where we're going this morning, continuing on in our series in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 17. Hope you had a great Christmas yesterday, good time to celebrate and enjoy the birth of our Savior Jesus Christ, and if you're like me, you may have gotten some gifts yesterday as well, and uh, maybe you got everything you expected to get. Maybe there were some surprises there where you were not expecting certain things, and you got them anyway. And this is the reality of life. All of life is filled with expectations. And uh, we, we expect certain things to occur. And at times they do, at times they don't. And in life we respond to those moments as we, we get and receive in, in relation to our expectations. It, it reminds me, uh, years ago, I was on a missions trip to Uganda uh, for about 15 days teaching to school there. And I was with a team and uh, every day of that trip, lunch and dinner, was the same meal. We had beans and rice and then a thing called matoke, which is a plantain, plain sort of potato dish as well. So lunch and dinner every day, that was it. And uh, breakfast is not a thing there. They had tea time. And we had uh, every day uh, kind of like a tortilla shell. Uh, it was very plain diet. By day eight, uh, I was ready for something that was not that. All right, so something a little more lively for my taste buds. And so we went as a team out that day. It was a Saturday and came to a, a mall kind of area. And we were walking through this area, and we walked by what was something like a bakery. And in those glass shelves uh, there was massive, I just want to say, massive slices of chocolate cake. Now for seven days in a row, I'd had beans and rice and like a plain potato. So I, we saw the chocolate cake and we're like, yes, right? So we, we got there, like, we'll have, we'll have five slices, please. And they're big slices. Uh, and we got these things. And my wife makes an awesome, decadent chocolate cake. It's fantastic. So my expectation in that moment is Rachel Kimball's chocolate cake, here I come. So get a fork, get a bite in the fork, put it in my mouth and realize instantaneously this is not American chocolate cake. This is like European chocolate cake. You don't know what that means. Like I was expecting sweet and I got bitter. You know what I'm saying? Like you're like expecting something that's going to be sweet and taste what normally you use a good dessert and it's just a sort of bitter tasting chocolate cake and I was like that costs money man right I ate it I ate it anyway so but I just was expecting one thing and another came and in life I mean it's a silly illustration but just to say in life we at many times expect sweet and what comes up feels more bitter we expect good and expect ease and comfort and convenience. And what can happen at times is just the opposite. Unmet expectations and disappointments are a part of life. Right? And, and, and even in those unmet expectations, when we expect sweet and perhaps get bitter, expect good and get hard things, difficult things in life, the beautiful thing, friends, to remember this day is God is always working a plan. Always. Always. 
We can bank on that as true. So we saw recently, a few weeks back, the disciples have expectations of Jesus. Right back in chapter 16, they're saying, hey, you're the Messiah, and we expect that whole messianic thing to work out for you and for us in a certain kind of way that's going to benefit us. And the reality we see here is the disciples have some wrong expectations, as we at times can have some wrong expectations. At, at times, we expect things of God, and, and they're based on Scripture, their promises, they're in Scripture, and they're right and they're good expectations. But other times, friends, we expect things in life that God has never promised. And we need to recognize, man, we, we need to orient and calibrate our expectations and our desires in the right place by immersing ourselves again and again in Scripture. What has the Bible said? What does it promise to us? What is it calling us to? Who is Jesus? What has he done? What has he accomplished? And based on that, what does the present hold? And what does the future hold? That's the idea we're trying to see in this gospel. So just to review briefly here, we've been in this gospel for a while now, and we said there are five teaching blocks in the whole gospel uh, that we go through one by one, and we're, we're just prior to that fourth teaching block in chapter 18, we're finishing this narrative section in Matthew 13, 53, on through the end of chapter 17. And in this section, we're seeing increasing tension. There's increasing rejection of Jesus by religious leaders. There's increasing confusion about who he is and what he's done. There's increasing, hey, we love the miracles, love the works, love the signs, but the whole following you thing sacrificially is not as much embraced by many the disciples' faith is growing, as we see in chapter 16. They, they confess, Peter confesses, you're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, spot on, well done, but don't, don't miss this. I'm going to be given over to men, and they're going to kill me. Oh, and by the way, uh, I want you all to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. Words for disciples then and now. To deny ourselves worldly pleasures to get the greatest pleasure in the universe. That is God himself. That's the call here. And we just saw two weeks ago the transfiguration of Jesus on this mountain. And now in this latter part of chapter 17, we're going to see three aspects of Christ's kingly authority, and also his servant identity. This is a crazy thing, to think of Jesus as the servant king. Kings get served. Kings don't serve, and yet the king of kings serves. This is what he does in his incarnation. So we're going to see three aspects of his servant king identity and authority, and then three corresponding calls on us as disciples in terms of following him. So this first section we see Jesus casts out a demon. This is in verse 14 we see in the Gospel of Matthew. So don't forget, he's just been on a mountain with P uh, Peter and James and John. He's transfigured 
His glory is unveiled to them. They are astounded by this. They then come back down from the mountain, and down below there's some issue going on here. There's a crowd there. There's a person, a a man, a father with a son who has an issue that wants healing a demon cast out, and the disciples of Jesus are not able to cast out this demon. Verse 14 says, when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and, and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures, and he suffers terribly, for often he falls into the fire and often into the water, and I, I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. So this man is desperately seeking healing for his son, and the disciples, by the way, tales later on, but in chapter 10 of, of Matthew, verse 8, Jesus gave the disciples authority, and one portion of that authority he gave them was to cast out demons. They, they have done this in the past, but here it's not happening And we recognize this man is pleading with Jesus, on his knees, pleading. We we have parents in the room, right? I I would do anything I possibly could in this life to see my kids thrive. I would do whatever it takes. If, If this is my son, and I've heard about all that Jesus has done, I am finding Jesus, and I'm saying, please help me, help me. And he does just that. So Jesus hears this request. He hears the heart part of his disciples not casting out this demon. And he says in verse 17, O faithless and twisted generation. Which are exact words from Deuteronomy describing the nation of Israel in moments they did not follow God as they were called to. He goes on, How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here. So Jesus has compassion for the crowd, including this man and his son, but he also expresses sorrow over their their being faithless and twisted as a generation. So this could be the the crowd he's referring to, saying, man, you see miracles and all this, and you're not following me as I'm calling you to follow me. It could be aimed at his disciples, who've been with him for a long time now and seen all he's done and yet aren't able to do this work as they're equipped by God to do. But God the Son mourns over the state of people's hearts and he longs them to see and to embrace who he is. And then Jesus exercises kingly authority. This is in verse 18. And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Now, if you're like me, you've read the Bible a few times, read the Gospels a few times, and there's a sentence. Jesus rebukes the demon, and it comes out of him, and the boy was healed instantly, and you just move on. And we should pause at times to recognize that's authority. That's authority for Jesus to say, come out of him, and the demon does. When Jesus says, wind and waves, be still, and they are, that's authority. When Jesus teaches authoritatively and says, you should come under and submit to these things, that's authority. This is the king of kings, where we look and say, man, there are 
As Ephesians 6 says, there's principalities and powers and forces of darkness arrayed against us. It would be good, friends, to remind ourselves, greater is he who is in us than he who's in the world. That sentence stands, it's so easy to miss, that stands as a testimony of Jesus' kingly authority over demons, over storms, over all things, over our lives. That's who he is. And so he cast out this demon. Now, the disciples, it goes on here, in verse 19, they have a question. They come to Jesus privately. The crowd disperses probably. They come privately, and they say, hey, uh, why couldn't we cast it out? This is in verse 19. Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. The issue is faith. The issue in unmet expectations and disappointments of life, when, when sweet turns to bitter, the issue is faith, friends. Believing in the character of God despite what life offers us when it's difficult, the issue is faith in Christ. And in this gospel, he's already said five times something like, oh, you have little faith. Right? Storm on the sea, you have little faith. Peter walking in the water, oh, you have little faith. Five times prior to this, Jesus is calling for our faith. Even when it seems crazy to believe in him, he's calling for our faith in him. And he's shown himself faithful in every way possible. If they'll walk by faith, if they will walk by faith, they can effectively engage in the commission Jesus gives them. And I'll say to us here, if we will walk by faith, if we'll walk by faith, we can effectively engage in the commission that Jesus gives to us. And notice this. Faith like a mustard seed. Now, I've heard lots of sermons on this passage, and I've heard lots of things like, now, a mustard seed is this size, and back in this day, I, I don't think that's a real necessity. I think the point is, a seed is small. Th there you go. A seed's small. So he's saying, like, hey, if you have faith, even small, little amount of faith, you can engage in this commission Jesus has given to you. It, it's like this. If you, if you were to, to go back to the very first Passover, Exodus 12 and 13. That's the night when you would have killed a lamb, you'd have smeared blood on the doorposts of your house, and that angel of the Lord would have passed over your house, but killed the firstborn son of those who didn't do this act. And imagine there's, there's two Jewish men who are talking on that night of Passover. That angel's about to come in a few hours and do his work. And one, one Jewish man is very confident. And one Jewish man is pretty nervous. And the nervous man says to the confident man, boy, are you, are you, are you nervous about tonight? And the confident guy's like, no. Didn't you kill the lamb? Well, yeah. What's with the blood on the doorposts? Yeah. Well, you're fine. We do what God said to do. Well, I, I know, but 
I've got a firstborn son, so do you. I mean, this is a nerve-wracking thing. It's like, well, it's fine. We did what we're supposed to do. Let's believe God and trust him and, and go forward the next day. So next day comes. Yes, the question, whose son of those two men, whose son died? And the answer is neither. Because it is not about the intensity of your faith, ultimately. It's about the object of your faith. So the idea is, Jesus is saying, if you have faith like a mustard seed, that's really small, people. He's saying it's not about the intensity. It's about the object. Have faith in me, Jesus says. That's the idea, having faith in Christ. Faith shows not our power. It shows the power of God to extend his kingdom by means of the proclamation of the gospel and faith in Jesus. We walk by faith, friends. We walk by faith. There's a great need for faith in the Christian life. We're called as Christians to believe to be saved in the first place and then to walk out our Christian life by faith. But we should note two things really briefly here. First, just because we have faith in Jesus... And just because Jesus says a small amount of faith will offer access to him and his power, that doesn't mean life is going to be easy. That doesn't mean life is going to be comfortable all the time. I mean, things happen. I mean, a month ago, I'm driving my van, and all of a sudden, like, the engine light turns on. Well, that can mean a million things. Is there ever a convenient time for an engine light to come on, like, ever? Right? I, I'm like, man, why now? Why now, Lord? I'm sure God, if he would just be speaking all of would say, like, is there ever a convenient time, Kimball? Like, really? But things occur in life from car repairs to relational issues to illness to all manner of things. That's life, friends. We, I say to my family often, we live in a post-Genesis 3 world. Romans 8 says this creation is groaning, waiting for the day of redemption and Christ's second coming. Living by faith allows us to engage effectively in gospel ministry out of love for God and others and see incredible results. People saved, people discipled, people saved from addictions, all manner of things. And that happens even when everything around us is not going Ideally, walking by faith accesses God's power, and we see results in ministry. It doesn't always, though, mean life is utterly convenient or easy. Secondly, I just want to say this as well. Jesus does rebuke for lack of faith. We see that here. But notice patience. He says, oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to bear with you? But he bears with them. He heals the kid. He does the work. He bears with us. That's good news, that God is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love toward us. That is good news, friends. He is patient toward us in every possible respect. He's patient. When our faith is like a mustard seed. He's patient when our faith flounders. In fact, in a parallel text in, in Mark, this is the place 
Maybe you know this line. This is the place in Mark 9 where uh, a guy says, um, hey, if you, can, if you can heal him, please do. And Jesus says, if I can, all things are possible if you believe. Say, I, I believe, help my unbelief. You ever been there? I have about 250,000 times praying that kind of prayer. God, I believe, help my unbelief. And he's patient. He's patient with us. He works in our midst in these ways. So he casts out a demon. But say here, Jesus displays his power. So the call is to trust in him, friends. He displays his power all the time in our lives, and the call is to trust in him. So let's walk by faith in his character, in his promises. And some of us here may wonder why God isn't dealing with some major issue in our lives. And my answer to you is, I don't know. I'm not him. The call, like Hebrews 11 says, with so many saints who've gone before us and walked through difficulty and trial, is to walk by faith. And as we walk by faith, he will sustain us, and he will uplift us, and he will uphold us. He will hold us fast. That's the promise we have. Secondly, Jesus speaks of his coming death and resurrection. Verse 22, as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is going about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he'll be raised on the third day, and they were greatly distressed. So, this is the, the second of three times in the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus will speak of his coming death and resurrection. 16.21, here, and then 20.17 through 19. He says, I'll be delivered to men, they're going to kill me, and I will rise on the third day. And it says in verse 23, they are greatly distressed, which is improvement, it seems, from chapter 16, where Peter argues with Jesus about that, and then Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. This seems to be some improvement, right? So they're greatly distressed. Now, why are they greatly distressed? Well, obviously, they love Jesus. They love Jesus, no doubt about that. But beyond that, again, it seems as though their expectation is, okay, Jesus, you are the Messiah, this, this coming king, so we're going to toss out Rome set up a kingdom where you're the king and we're really close to you, so it's going to work out well for us too, right? That's the expectation we see from these guys throughout the gospel up to later on. And they have yet to grasp as well Jesus' words to say, hey, I'm going to die. By the way, you're also called to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow after me. They're just not... They're not getting it. They, they think they get it, but they're not getting it. And so uh, this happens at times in life. You think you understand something, and you don't. So my, my parents are here today. Had this, before I knew you were coming, Dad, today. So, But anyway, just a, a thought here on this. There were times when I was growing up, uh, I would drive my dad crazy by doing this. But a lot of things. But one thing I did was... He would give me some nugget of information, some piece of wisdom for my life. 
that he thought was important for me to know, and I would respond with the phrase, I know. My word, I'm sorry. Anyway, so, because here's the thing. He'd say something to me, and I'd respond with, I know. And guess what? I didn't know. Are you kidding me? I'm 16, man. So I'd say, yeah, I know, I know, I know. Well, like an hour later, I'm like, oh, I, I don't know. Right? And, and here it seems like Jesus says, I'm the Messiah. And the disciples are like, well, we know. And you're going to rule and reign, and it's going to be awesome for us. And Jesus is like, no, no. That's second coming. First coming, suffering Savior. Second coming, conquering King. But I came to suffer and serve and save in this first coming. So, and they also don't understand, I think, in full, the idea of Christ's resurrection. He's saying, I'll die and rise. And they're like, oh, okay. So many of the Gospels, they're just like, what? And they're not seeing the full reality of those things. Listen to John 10, verse 14. It says this, I am the good shepherd. Jesus says this, I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there'll be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again, this charge I have received from my Father. What authority? I, I can lay down my life, I can raise it up again. And he serves humanity in laying down his life and being raised from the dead. Jesus is saying to his disciples, the death and the resurrection is the lens through which you should see all of life. This is the apex of history. This is the Messiah, God the Son, coming and doing a work on behalf of humanity that we might be saved from sin and death. That text says there are other sheep who are not of this fold. What that means is there are people in this world who do not yet believe in Jesus in a saving way. And I'm saying to you all today, today is the day of salvation. To hear the gospel news and to say, man, Jesus came as Savior to save us from our sins. He died a death that we should have died for our sins. He died in our place. He rose from the dead to say, death and sin have no hold over me. And now if we believe in Christ and his accomplished work and say, you are my Savior and my Lord, there is nothing better or greater than you, I submit my life to you, we will be saved. Brothers and sisters, that's encouragement to us to know that gospel is true. And our life has purpose because we're in Christ. And if you don't know Christ, the call today is to believe in him and receive him as your savior and your Lord and your treasure and be saved. Not by your own works, by his finished work. That's the call. So here we see Jesus died and was raised and so we should hope in him. All right, so we, we see Again, the, the, the death, the resurrection. He died and was raised. We should hope in him. Faith in Jesus. Hope in Jesus. God has acted in love to save us from our sins. We should look back 
and thank God for that. We should look forward to his second coming, and we should hope, friends. We should live with confident expectation. We should be the people who are always ready to give a defense for the reason, for the hope that is in us. 1 Peter 3.15 says, Hope should be showing forth in our lives to such an extent that people ask about the hope in us. Maybe you look and say, man, life, the world seems hopeless right now. Everyone just feels hopeless. Not Christians. Not Christians. We should be a hope-filled people so that in hopeless times, people look and say, man, what is wrong with you? Why are you hope-filled? Why is there a confidence in you when the world seems to be falling apart? And the answer is the life and the death and the resurrection and soon coming of Jesus. That's why. It far surpasses any life circumstance. I struggle with that. I can get hopeless quick. And I've got to preach to myself that's who Jesus is, and that's what he accomplished all the time. Well, finally, in verse 24, Jesus identifies himself and his disciples. This, this is an interesting story. Got assigned this text a while back to preach, and I was like, this will be, be interesting. It's, this is beautiful, actually. So they come to Capernaum, and these Jewish tax collectors come, and they want to collect um, a temple tax. It's a half shekel, or you may have in your, your ESV, if you have that Bible, a two drachma. It's the same amount of currency there, a tax, to help pay for the, the proceeds of what goes on in the temple. So they come to Peter in verse 24 and say, does your teacher not pay the tax? Now, this is a question that is expecting an affirmative response. You know those questions? So when I first moved back to Ohio years and years ago, um, uh, a guy that I, I met and got to know uh, when I came back to Ohio said to me at one point, so you root for Ohio State and not that team of North, right? It's expecting a certain kind of response. Or you may say to your kids, you're going to clean up your room, right? Or to the coworker, you're going to finish that project on time, right? It's expecting an affirmative sort of response, and they're expecting a yes thing here. And Peter says in verse 25, yes. And he comes into the house, and Jesus spoke to him. Now, this is really interesting. It, it seems as though Jesus is fully aware of all that transpired in this conversation. He knows what's going on. He's fully aware of this. And he wants to ask a question and make a point that is really significant. So, he says in verse 25, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said, from others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Now, just to cut to the chase, I have no application for fishing and finding money. 
Sorry, I have none of that <laughs> to give to you today. But uh, the, the, the very intriguing thing is this. So Jesus says to Peter, okay, look, who pays taxes? The king's kids or the king's subjects? And Peter says, well, it's the king's subjects, right? The king's kids get some perks, right? They're, they're tax-free. It's like, right. So he says in verse 26, then the sons are free. That's a, that's a key sentence. You might pass over that. Then the sons are free. What does Jesus mean by that? Well, here's what he means. He's saying, in effect, look, I am God the Son. When they say, you owe a temple tax, Jesus could say, do you know who you're talking to? Like, I'm God the Son. I, I am the King. And those who have faith in me are sons of the kingdom. They're children of God himself. Those children would be free of taxation that way. Oh, and also, by the way, Jesus came on the scene, and they're paying a tax for this temple that's built, this elaborate building. But elsewhere in the gospel, Jesus says, oh, now that I've come, guess what the true temple is? Jesus. Oh, and then he says later on, hey, not only are you children of God, sons of the kingdom, you, after I depart, the Spirit of God is going to reside in you, and you're going to be this new temple where God resides, God dwells, and God is worshipped. Because a temple, a temple is just a place where God is present and God is worshipped. That's what a temple is. A place where God is present and God is worshipped. And we now, friends, we now are 1 Corinthians 3, 1 Corinthians 6, 2 Corinthians 6, Ephesians 2, various places say, we are the temple of the living God. The Spirit of God resides in us, and this is who we are. Are. So he's just trying to make a point about his identity and our identity. Jesus is saying, I'm God the Son and this new temple. Oh, and you are going to be, through faith in me, children of God and this new temple where God is worshipped, the Spirit of God dwells. That's who you are. It's your identity in Christ. That's where we recognize we offer to God spiritual sacrifices of praise, we do good, we share resources, we offer our lives as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, that's our spiritual worship. Then he goes on, he says, not to offend anybody, right, so he's going to pay the tax here. He says, go to the sea, cast a hook, taste first fish that comes up, and you find a shekel and pay the tax with that coin. Now, just, just think about this really quick. Somewhere along the way, somebody dropped a coin, and that coin dropped into the sea. And a fish came by and swallowed that coin, only got sort of lodged in its mouth and didn't get swallowed all the way down. And Peter walks to a certain area of water, lets down a line and hook into that water, and that particular fish happens to be there, and that particular fish happens to beat out the rest of the fish to the hook and say, I'll go there and take that hook. It does, and Peter pulls up that fish, and it has that coin. That's a crazy sequence of events, friends. And the point to say is this. There are no accidents in your life. None. God is operating in kingly authority in our lives all of the time. 
He's operating in providence and sovereignty in a way that brings about good, namely good that is us being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That's Romans 8, 28 and 29. We see that there in that way. So again, the point of this passage is not just cool. There's a fish with a coin in his mouth. The point is to say we are in Christ children of God and this temple where God is present in us and God is worshipped by us. So the point here being this. Jesus declares he is God the Son. So we're called to worship him. So let's know who Jesus is and let's worship. That, that includes, we're going to sing some more songs today, pray some prayers today. That's good. But friends, all of life can be an act of worship. Whether it be related to our spouse, our kids, our siblings, our grandkids, working a job, caring for a home or property, relating to your neighbors, serving in the church and your community, whether it's exercising or driving on your way to a vacation or doing schoolwork or playing music or engaging in endeavors to make disciples of Jesus or eating food or praying or chopping wood or teaching the Bible. All of those are opportunities to worship God. Every single one. So we acknowledge him as king and we worship him. So, friends, the, as we keep on going through this book, the Gospel of Matthew, the, the idea is clear. The call for us is clear. And it's this. Jesus is the king of the kingdom and the suffering savior. And the call for us based on his identity is follow him, follow him, deny yourself, Take your cross and follow him. That's who he is. He's worthy of all of our faith. He's worthy of all of our hope. He's worthy of all of our worship because of who he is. That's the reality we see in our lives. And so some brief points then to, to call us to application in these areas. First, with that idea in mind, we should read and study this gospel of Matthew. In fact, we should read and study the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In fact, <laughs> we should read and study the entire Bible, which shows us the greatness and the goodness and the glory of our great God. We should give ourselves to be immersed in this book so that the world is not in interpreted or interpreting the way we see the Bible, the Bible is interpreting the way we see the world. We see it through God-centered lenses. And secondly, we should pray. Friends, pray. Pray, as, as Aaron Cook preached last week, pray that we would see glory. We'd see Christ in all of his fullness and say, you're worthy that our affections would be raised for him because he's worthy of our affections being raised for him. He's so good. He's so kind. He's so patient. He is lion and he is lamb. He is full of holiness and mercy. He's the suffering savior and the conquering king. He is sovereign over disease and demons and death and weather and he is compassionate and merciful and patient. He died 
And in his death and resurrection, we find life. He is the son. We are adopted into his family, united to him by faith. That's who he is. That's who he is. And you respond then in certain ways. Even, third, to say this, as God's plan for our lives may involve hardships. We don't know this year what hardships. We have no idea. But as this plan involves these things, we approach him in confident faith. We approach him in confident faith. And then also, because Jesus is better, he's better than any Messiah, better than any Savior that we could ever conjure up. He's better then we should rejoice in who he is. Like Peter says, though we have not seen him, we love him. Though we do not now see him, we believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining as the outcome of our faith the salvation of our souls. That's a now love, friends. That's a now faith friends. That's a now rejoicing, friends, from seeing who he is in the text and saying, I believe. I have hope. I worship Jesus, the great king of the kingdom and our suffering savior. All that he is, is a beckons and a call to follow him all of our days. So Father, I pray that you'd give us grace and strength to do that. When life is sweet, when life becomes bitter and difficult, you sustain us. You never change. Your character is always sound and steadfast. You are always trustworthy. You are always reliable. You are always faithful. Whatever circumstance, we will believe in you. We will hope in you, and we will worship you. Help this church, help us at Grace Baptist to walk alongside one another, because it's hard sometimes, Lord. It's so hard sometimes. Help us to help one another to believe in you, to hope in you, and to worship you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.